Hello, everyone. Welcome to Learning About Learning, the podcast of the Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education at Brandeis University. I'm John Levison, and we originally recorded this episode with Hannah Kober on January 18th, 2024, as part of our webinar series. And we're delighted to share it with you now as the next episode of our podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Hannah about her research on how Israeli Americans think about Hebrew language learning for their kids. Hannah wants to help us see the way that Israeli Americans often attach a great deal of emotional significance to whether their children speak Hebrew and also to what kind of Hebrew they speak. For Israeli Americans, the educational institutions of the American Jewish community may not always serve their needs. If the Hebrew accent is not quite right, or if they involve other religious activities that, for some Israeli Americans, are not entirely comfortable. This conversation is particularly relevant to Jewish educators and Jewish professionals because the needs and interests of Israeli Americans are not exactly aligned with other American Jews. So if the leaders of the American Jewish community want to meet the needs of Israeli Americans, they'll have to start by understanding those needs more deeply and with greater sensitivity. Thanks for being here. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation with Hannah Kober as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Hello and welcome to the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education at Brandeis University. My name is John Levison. I'm the director of the Mandel Center and I'm delighted to bring you another installment in our podcast, Learning About Learning. At the Mandel Center, we are committed to advancing the field of Jewish educational scholarship, especially scholarship on teaching and learning, in order to make a deep and lasting difference on the lives of learners and the vibrancy of the Jewish community. That's our mission. We know that there's great scholarship being done in the field of Jewish education, but it's not always accessible. And even when it is, it's not always obvious why people in the field of Jewish education should care about it. That's what this podcast is about making really interesting scholarship on Jewish education accessible and talking with scholars about why it matters. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy learning about learning as much as I do. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is my friend and colleague, Hannah Kober. Hannah is completing her doctorate now at Stanford University, where she's been a Jim Joseph Fellow. She's been a Wexner Graduate Fellow. She's also a participant in the Doctoral Fellows Program here at the Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education. And she's also uh, a David Hartman Center Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. And last but not least, uh, I'm also proud that she is an alumna of Brandeis University. And we invited Hannah to participate in this series so that we could talk about her recently published article in the Journal of Jewish Education. The title of the article is A Fraying Connection, Israeli-American Perspectives on Diasporic Hebrew Learning Through and Beyond Jewish Education. I loved reading this article, and I'm really excited to talk about it with Hannah. So Hannah, welcome. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. Of course. So in order to get the conversation rolling, I'd like to start, as uh, I always do, with the backstory. So tell us how you decided that you wanted to study Hebrew language and why specifically among Israeli Americans 
Um, and then also tell us a little bit about your methodology. So what did your research process for this particular article look like? Great. So um, back when I was studying at Brandeis for my BA, I was um, focusing on applied linguistics, sociology of, of language, sociolinguistics, and Jewish studies. And I was interested in thinking about how different Jewish communities use language, but I was very hesitant for a long time to think more deeply about the Hebrew learning environments that I had been in and that I was teaching in at the time. But as I went through, you know, my teaching experiences and my thesis writing experience, um, I had been writing about Arabic, uh, Jewish Arabic learners in Israel. I realized that I had a lot to unpack about American Hebrew education. And it turns out as soon as I opened my mouth about that, I became a vessel for everyone's stories and baggage about Hebrew learning. And then I realized that my work was not done. And I uh, started this PhD in uh, educational linguistics at Stanford to unpack some of the dynamics that make Hebrew education the way it is in the United States and thinking more specifically about how different stakeholders think about what they're doing when they're engaging in Hebrew learning or Hebrew teaching. And I ran with that for a bit, and I was hoping to do an in-class ethnography, um, thinking about how student-teacher dynamics play out when it comes to accent correction, and whether that changes the relationship that students have with the language in the long term. Uh, the pandemic hit, and I had to find a more pandemic-savvy project. And I found an ad on the internet for uh, uh, an initiative to push Hebrew into LA public high schools. And it was coming out of the uh, Israeli expat population in LA. And I said, oh, you know, this is interesting. I have always been thinking about the ways in which different users of Hebrew interact with each other in schools. But I didn't think so much about flipping the script, not thinking about American Jewish experience. And by American Jews, I mean people who don't have Israeli heritage, as opposed to American Jews who actually do have Israeli heritage, um, and thinking about their perspectives when they enter a classroom, when they seek Hebrew learning opportunities for their kids or for themselves, and thinking more deeply about how that demographic has evolved as a growing base of Hebrew learners in the United States. So that's how I landed on this particular project. And it has taken me, I, this was my pilot study for my dissertation. Um, and this study took place in LA, but I, I was in the Bay Area for most of it. And um, I interviewed members of this initiative, I call them the IACEs, the uh, Israeli Americans for Civic Education. And it was um, part of this broader organization that was making the voice or aiming to make the voice of Israeli Americans in the greater LA area, but also nationally, louder, clearer for people who, for the levers of power um, in civic institutions. Uh, and I thought to myself, you know, this is interesting, the process of leaning on public institutions to give you private goods, to give you, you know, your heritage language resources. And I asked these parents um, in a multi-series conversation, um, why this you know, why this program? Why, why, why are we interested in Hebrew in public schools? Why now? Where? And how does that relate to the many, many options that exist in LA? What does that say about these parents as users or non-users of the institutions that are around them? And what are their actual needs in their own words? And um, I ended up listening to their, um, it, was, it was a qualitative study only. I also did some observations at local programs and meetings with the school board. And I uh, analyze their, their interview transcripts, looking for how they identify their needs as compared to 
the needs of non-Israeli American Jews. Right. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but um, I use grounded theory methods and draw, drew out a narrative about language loss on the one hand as one animating concern and authenticity and concerns about preserving authenticity and recreating authenticity on American soil. Yeah. So it's interesting that you started talking about accents. Maybe we'll circle back to questions of accent because it turns out that um, accent becomes really significant in fascinating ways. So this is a population that is uh, not typically studied. We don't we don't haven't done a lot of work. We meaning scholars haven't done a lot of work with Israeli Americans. And you heard a great deal of interest and of concern. And you're trying to understand the nature of that concern, especially as it relates to Hebrew language and then as it kind of ripples out into other areas. So what's the argument at the 30,000 foot level? What did you learn from these families about how they think about Hebrew? Uh, well, I learned that they're not a monolith, um, right. which I, I came in with that assumption, but um, their voices made that ever more clear, particularly around the experiences they've had with American Jewish institutions and different points of access they have to Jewish life in an American context, and that those experiences and those assumptions about what's going on at schools, at Hebrew schools, at camps, and things like that, informs their level of trust in the institution to give them the Hebrew language resources they're looking for for their kids. Um, so they're looking for cues from fellow Israeli families who are in the area. They're you know, have their kids' friends over for a play date, and whether the kid can or cannot communicate in Hebrew after a certain number of years in day school is a, a sign for them about, you know, or their accent use is a sign for them about whether they would want their own kids in that environment. And there are key markers of authenticity that extend beyond just the linguistic pieces. So there are also concerns about religious coercion. So if there are fears that institutions will force them or educators in institutions will force their kids to use blessings and use God language and access texts in a way that they don't particularly appreciate that are unfamiliar to them. Um, I just also, want to clarify. So yeah. in that case, you're talking specifically about Israelis who self-identify as secular or chiloni. Yes. And, yes. That, and that comes with sort of a... A, a set of assumptions about what they don't want right. in a context in which they're learning Hebrew. Uh, you know, I, as a secular Israeli American, I want to make sure that my child is not subject to religious coercion. Right. And also religious schooling more broadly is a strange concept for many of them. Um, mm -hmm. But I thank you for, for making that clarification. And also I'll put in a plug. I'm writing a paper right now about really nuancing our understanding of what Israeli secularism means to these families based on a project I did in the Bay Area. And secular can also entail a lot of different relationships to right. organized religion. So we'll, we'll table that, uh, but definitely there's a lot more there. And also the last piece there is about political commitments. So if a school wavers in their support for Israel and their public messaging, that sends a message to these parents about whether the content they teach there has the integrity that they're looking for. Right. And I guess we should clarify for our listeners that you carried out this research before October 7th, right? Okay. So there was, these are, we can hypothesize about how families or individuals respond now, but this was pre- October 7th and before the war in Gaza. And was, this was deep COVID. This was 2020 and 2021. Yeah. So yeah, different set of circumstances at play. Right. Okay. So tell me more about this idea of authenticity. It's already come up briefly. And to a certain extent, authenticity is always present. Concerns about authenticity are always present whenever we make judgments about what kinds of Jewish practice we should emphasize or 
display, and it, and it's particularly relevant to language. We make judgments about authentic use of language, about accents. But tell us what you found about how the issue of authenticity plays out for these particular Israeli American families. Uh, so it really varies. And in this study, it, I really had um, parents who were along a, a pretty wide spectrum on this. So I had one parent who um, is also a Hebrew educator herself, who was very concerned that her children be taught in, in, when, in, when it came to formal Hebrew instruction, were taught by Israelis, native Hebrew speakers, that the um, sort of like the full zeitgeist of Israeliness could be transmitted to her kid through somebody who really knew that themselves. Um, then you had somebody who's, you know, one step over in the other direction saying, you know, it would be nice, but actually it's just most important that I put my, that my, I have reinforcement outside of the house um, in Hebrew language, because it's really hard for me to get all of this across in the limited time that I have at home with my kids. I'm not going to teach them how to write on my own, right? And then sort of the, uh, all the way on the other end of that spectrum, you have someone, longtime educator, she's older, she's also a grandmother, and her granddaughter goes to a Jewish day school um, in the DC area. And she said to me and during our first conversation, you know, my, my granddaughter sounds like an American day school student and I don't mind. Mm-hmm. And we, we unpack that for a bit. You know, what does it mean to sound like an American day school student? A lot of it was accent, sort of the, the pace. Um, but the thing is that this is somebody who technically has Israeli heritage, this, this young girl. Um, but to her, the Israeliness was less important to her as long as her kid was connected, her grandchild was connected to uh, Jewish life. So the accent didn't matter as much. The sort of particular relationships that they might have with institutions didn't matter as much. Um, the apprehension or the the desire for Israeli-centered programming didn't matter as much. So that sort of so there's you know. that range. And at one point in the in the article, you named a couple of assumptions that um, the phrase you use may have flattened the inquiry, right? So you want to kind of call attention to these to these assumptions. And one of the assumptions is about the temporariness of the Israeli-American community, some assumption that, of course, Israeli-Americans are only here on a temporary basis, which would have a lot of implications for language learning, among other things, because maybe you're learning language in order to then be comfortable when you return. I'm actually less interested in that. I'm interested in this other assumption about what you call the stability of Hebrew knowledge, the, an assumption about the stability of Hebrew knowledge. What is? What did you mean by that? So I, I have a story for that. I was um, at um, my synagogue in San Francisco when I was living there, and uh, we were putting chairs away at the end of services. And I was telling someone in the community about my dissertation research because she asked me for the first time. And she said, you know what? I was the experimental generation. She's a, a woman in her early 40s, and she grew up in Palo Alto. And she said, my parents assumed that if they spoke to me in Hebrew at home and sent me to public school without any other additional reinforcement or you know, experiential education components, I would turn out a you know, cookie cutter Israeli as if I were born, uh-huh. as if I lived in Israel my whole life. And we know that that's not how that works in many cases, right? Um, and the experimental generation piece was really key for me because when I started to do my research, I was capturing a major spurt in, you know, and activities that are uh, directed toward giving Hebrew language resources for Israelis who are in the United States for however long they're here. So that, you know, I, I sometimes say when I'm being flipped that, you know, he, language acquisition isn't magic, you know, and kids don't just pop out speaking whatever language their parents speak, right? So there's a lot that needs to go on to enable that 
long-term acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, sort of the, the short answer to, to your question. Great, great. Actually, just have one last piece there, um, yeah. which is that the assumption that kids who come from Hebrew-speaking homes will speak Hebrew as adults and also will feed into the pipeline of Hebrew educators has proven to be a very, very weak idea. Because if they don't feel like they're conversant or have that level of facility with Hebrew, they're not going to be drawn into that pipeline. So I think that that's also um, something that we leave unchecked sometimes I wanted to put on the table. Right. So where there's an assumption about the role that Israeli Americans play as Hebrew educators more broadly for the American Jewish community or even beyond the American Jewish community. But a lot of things have to happen in order for a particular person born or raised in in the United States to actually feel like that's something that they want to, that they can and they want to invest in. Um, And in a way, that's a good segue to the next question, because we have this category. It's an important category in second language acquisition of heritage language learners, right? There are some people who have a connection to a language through their family and other people don't, right? Mm-hmm. If I was to decide to learn uh, to learn Korean, I have no connection there, and it and I'm just coming in as an outsider. And it feels intuitive that having that heritage should make a difference. But you're also pointing out how complicated that those connections are. So tell us a little bit more about about why heritage language learners as a category is actually maybe too broad or or, or complicated. Yeah, or, or possibly even too narrow. Um, so we, when we talk about heritage language learners, we assume that you're a heritage language learner in one language. So mm-hmm. I have in the study um, Rivital, who is actually, she's from the former Soviet Union. She moved to Israel as a teenager. Russian is technically her heritage language. Her husband is an American who isn't Jewish, who is a monolingual English speaker. Um, so when we think about heritage learners in general, we think about the Jewish community more broadly, when we think about Israelis in the United States, we need to actually consider blended families in that way. So that's sort of one one piece there, you know, assuming that both parents, that there's, it's a two-headed household, that both parents can reinforce it at home is a a stretch um, in a lot of cases, right? Even though, you know, many of the people I've spoken to over the years have fit into that category. And then I'll, I'll say about the outcomes of heritage language learners. And I'm going to sort of put that in a bucket. Like we assume that heritage language learners will be more successful, um, you know, if they're hearing the language at home, if they are um, having opportunities to be immersed in terms of the the public sphere, if they have travel to the homeland, things Mm -hmm. like that, which during the pandemic, there were a lot of those dynamics were in flux. So I'm talking to parents who can't actually take their kids to Israel when I was doing this study. That's an important thing. But you end up also with a really, really wide range you know, the efforts that families are willing to put into have external resources, you know, Zoom classes, summer camp, Sophim, like Israeli scouts, things mm-hmm. like that, that create that immersive environment. And you also have kids with idiosyncratic personalities. So um, I'll bring an example from the study I'm working on right now. You have on the one end in terms of, you know, maximally plugged in parents who are working really hard to put their kids in Hebrew speaking environments, their social circle is Hebrew speaking. And you have a kid who's quite frankly, is quite gifted, taught himself how to read in Hebrew just from the books in his house. And he can tell you all about, you know, the seating capacity of of major stadiums all around the world in Hebrew. He did that in real life. And then you have, on the other hand, you know, plenty of kids in between. On the other hand, you have um, a, a parent who wants to care, but quite frankly, doesn't feel like she has the bandwidth to reinforce Hebrew at home. She hasn't really done much in the way of outsourcing Hebrew instruction or Hebrew exposure outside of the home. 
And she has a kid who's really resistant to the idea of responding to her in Hebrew. And her older, uh, this is the younger child, the, the, the first child showed signs of sort of flipping into English. And the younger kid took that cue uh -huh. um, and is really disinterested and makes that very, very clear. He's only seven right now. So to give you a sense of, you know, really what you can expect in that range, it's, right. it's quite wide. So assuming right. that heritage learners perform in one way or engage in one way or, you know, is, is sort of a little bit of a futile exercise, but it's important to understand that they are getting some Hebrew at home. Their parents are by and large speaking to them in Hebrew, maybe not in public, but in, at the home. And many American Jews do not have access to that kind of language atmosphere. Right. So there's there are inputs, um, whether mm -hmm. the, that's um, actual linguistic inputs or emotional inputs that affect their motivation. But we don't always know how that plays out. And families are complicated and right. motivations are not uh, always simple and straightforward. Mm -hmm. um, uh, right. We can imagine, you know, for some kids, the way they they are going to resist or act out is actually to resist what they identify as their parents language, right. um, even though, quote, their heritage language learners. So, I will say that I wonder if in the post-October 7th moment, whether there is more interest from some of those kids who initially would have been resistant, but are seeing that, you know, there's hostility towards their identity and they're having actually a, a different reaction to this moment where they're saying, oh, I really want to communicate with my cousins right now. Right. I really want to stand, you know, stand proud for, you know, where my family comes mm -hmm. from, things like that. I'm sure there's also the opposite, but I wanted mm -hmm. to name that. Right. It's, a, it's an excellent question. And there, we are starting to see some empirical research on um, American Jews and, and, and others around this, but we'll have to wait to kind of yeah. see more about that. So for these Israeli-American families that you spoke to, how would you say what Hebrew actually means to them? You've referred a little bit to the idea of, of losing facility or linguistic attrition is the term that you use at one point in the paper. So what does it mean to kind of carry around this fear of linguistic attrition as part of what you're thinking about the language? I would say, in short, it's family, it's home. It's the most salient connection to Judaism for those who are identified as more secular. And loss of those pieces or the threat of loss of those pieces is deeply emotional, especially if you feel as a parent that you cannot actually communicate to your kid in the language that is most true to you, that you feel like you can be most expressive in. And so it, it sort of is very primal in that sense. So you heard from these families an undercurrent of anxiety, of fear? Yeah. 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 And sort of coming to terms with a more permanent stay in the United States resulting in a, a different kind of language acquisition than they might have anticipated. And that's something that is challenging for some of the people I've spoken to and for others they realized when they, you know, decided they were no longer sitting on their suitcases and they, they right. were going to buy a house in, you know, in Tarzana that their kids were going to become American and that they were going to have to cope with some of those aspects of loss. Yeah. It feels to me like that's really important for us to think about. And us now I'm, I'm thinking about as a kind of a policy level that heritage language learners are also sometimes operating within the context of of this fear and this loss. Right. That's 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 emotionally freighted. It's not just isn't it great that I get to hear some Hebrew sometimes? There's a lot going on here. And, uh, you know, I guess my counsel then would be to educators to really try and be sensitive to the those emotional dynamics, which, which are pretty powerful. Yeah, I would say um, that sensitivity is really important. And also listening to where those sensitivities are evoked in educational institutions. 
is an important project, I would say, especially in moments like these. And um, I, I think, you know, I'll talk about this more, um, I think, in a bit. But, you know, after October 7th, there are more Israeli families who are showing up at various non-Israeli centered American Jewish institutions. Mm -hmm. And the institutions aren't quite sure how to accommodate these families. And sometimes they assume that they know all the answers, that if their kids just enroll in the day school, they're going to feel safe and loved and affirmed and whatnot, and aren't necessarily thinking about the particular um, aspects of their identity that might not be answered for in a program that wasn't actually built for them. Um, right. So we don't have a lot of time left, but mm -hmm. I want to ask you to drill down on that just a little bit more, that you know, education, specifically Jewish education, is not always perceived as the solution to the problem. Sometimes it's perceived as actually contributing to, quote, the problem. So so tell us more about that. Um, I guess what I heard from some of these parents is a fear of, of American Judaism, a fear of um, really the stigmas that are heard in Israeli society about American Judaism, that it's inauthentic, that families are loosely plugged in, that they um, are unknowledgeable about Jewish tradition and language. And even if these families don't know more Jewishly, there's sometimes a level of condescension toward American Jews, right? So I think that it's important for, you know, those of us who think about this and who are practitioners in these spaces to really lean into that a little bit and hear where those points of tension are. Because it's, you know, in the same way as families who actually are less uh, plugged into um, this institutional landscape, and they might not know what goes on in these schools. They might have what to learn about what maybe liberal Jewish practice or liberal Jewish schooling has to offer them. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe their assumptions from Israel don't totally reflect the reality on the ground. And the same is true for the level of humility of people who administer these programs and who do research in these spaces to think more critically about the barriers to entry to these institutions. Great. Okay, so we're coming up on the on the end of our 30 minutes. It always goes extremely quickly, but I want to make sure that I ask you my last question, and that is, why does this research matter? Why does it matter for Jewish educators, Jewish leaders? Why should we care? Uh, I think for the reason that I alluded to earlier, Israelis in the United States are a growing base of Amer American Jews. <laughs> and if you care about the well-being of American Jewish families or Jewish families more broadly, it requires a deeper look at what American Jews or Jews who happen to be in the United States for whatever reason that brings them here are looking for in order to enable their success where they are. And, you know, the geopolitical moment that we're in heightens that for various folks who are deciding whether they want the United States or North America or wherever they, you know, wherever they, they might be, whether they want that to be their long-term home. And sometimes they're thinking about, and we need to be aware of that, they're thinking about what things will actually enable them to be true to themselves in a long-term way in their new environment. And that's where their voices come into this conversation. Wonderful. Thank you, Hannah. It is great to talk with you um, about your work. I want to thank all of you for joining us. I encourage you to check out the Mandel Center events page to learn about upcoming events. Subscribe to our YouTube page, our podcast. Quickly, our next event will be uh, titled Why Young Jews Love Yiddish. So we're moving from uh, Israeli Americans and Hebrew to American Jews and Yiddish. And that is with Sandra Fox. Thank you again, Hannah. Thank you all for joining us. Take care.